is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a show devoted to subjects that are difficult to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, afraid, or ashamed. My guest today is Sherry Edwards, who is the Community Response Coordinator for Caring Unlimited, which is the domestic violence project of, the York, of York County. She's been working in domestic violence for the past 15 years and is the mom of two grown children. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you. So glad that you're here. I wanted to start by asking you to tell us this, your story about how you met this man, what happened in your relationship, and how you got out. Well, um, it's it's kind of a long story, so I'll make it I'll make it as brief as I can. But I met him when we worked together, and some friends had suggested that he might be a good person to date, and so we started dating, and he was wonderful in the beginning. Things were, I thought, fabulous. He was articulate, intelligent, handsome, wonderful. Mm -hmm. And slowly, over time, he started to exhibit what I now identify as some controlling behavior always wanting to know where I was, um, being concerned that uh, I was spending too much time with my friends, things like that. But he framed it in a way that, to me, at the time, seemed like caring. Mm -hmm. And uh, the physical violence that became part of that, of the abuse that I experienced, didn't start until after he had moved in with me. And I can I can clearly remember the first time he ever struck me, I was flabbergasted yeah. by it. He had asked to use my car, and I had said no. And he punched me in the stomach, mm. took my car keys, and took my car anyway. Mm. And I was just astounded. Yeah. And, you know, he came back the next day with my car and apologized and and said he didn't know what had come over him. And so there would be periods where there wasn't physical violence, but then it would rear its head again. And it, it got to the point where it was very severe, mm. very severe. And um, I was afraid for my life. Uh, there was one summer that I couldn't wear any shorts or short sleeve shirts because I was covered with bruises. And... Mm. Um, a difficult part for me was that I had a job, and the place that I met him was at the local hospital. That's where I worked. I worked in the emergency room of a small town hospital, and um, having to be treated at the hospital where I worked for injuries that were sustained by a oh. partner that I had met there was very, very degrading and mm. embarrassing. Um, did you feel like the staff um, were respectful of you and understood what was going on? Some were. Some were respectful and understood what was going on, but others were frustrated with the situation. Um, and I can remember one nurse that I had a great deal of respect for saying to me, what did you do to provoke it? What set him off? Hmm. As in, how was uh, yeah, this your fault? Exactly. That's, that's how I perceived it at the mm. time. So when you get responses like that from people, when you're in a situation like that, it makes you not want to tell people. And so then you're even more isolated. And isolation is such a key piece of domestic violence. Mm. Um, when you feel like you can't reach out to people either because they don't want to deal with it anymore or because um, you're ashamed and embarrassed and afraid that you're being blamed because the abuser already blames you. Mm. So when other people blame you as well, it's 
it can be paralyzing. So he would hit you and tell you that it was your fault you were being hit because you had done something bad? Yes, because uh -huh. I had looked at another guy, because I had agreed to let his niece and nephew spend the night at our house without talking to him first. But sometimes mm. he wouldn't do things like that. So I never really knew how he was going to respond. Uh -huh. One day that would be okay. The next day it wouldn't. So you were kind of walking on eggshells all, all the, the time. time. Mm -hmm. All the time. Mm -hmm. So here you were, you worked in an ER. So at some level you knew about domestic violence because you probably saw it in others. And mm -hmm. then it was going on with you how how did that sit inside you? How much were you really wrestling with it at that point about, I guess, whether to leave or not? It impacted me quite a bit because I would see victims of domestic violence come into the ER and I would think that that could be me. Hmm. That could that could be me. But the thing that really impacted me about that was listening to how the other people that I worked with would talk about. Oh. that situation and again as if it was the woman's fault and putting putting the um, responsibility for ending that abuse on her rather than on the perpetrator yes all the so, focus was on her right so what kinds of things would you hear them say she was in here two months ago and now she's back again she must want this to happen why uh, doesn't she just leave yeah. why do we even bother things like that why do we even bother and mm -hmm. and I can I'm sure it's very frustrating mm -hmm. right because you start to care for someone and then you see them being hurt and right. so you start to back away from it right right so there you are you hear your colleagues these people that you care about talking about these other women like that right so that's even that was even more isolating for me and I thought mm. there's no way I, w I want these people to know mm-hmm um, so I tried to hide it as much as possible. I went to work with injuries and made up stories and things like that. But after a while, it just got to be too, too much. And I started the process of trying to end the relationship. We had broken up and gotten back together several times with promises of change that didn't occur or would happen for short periods of time, but then wouldn't be sustained. So I had, I had had him move out of my house and then continued to see him but not let him live at my house and then I stopped allowing him to ever be around my children mm. um, and during that time no one knew that I was seeing him because everyone knew that he had you know that he had done these things to me so I thought I'm not going to be the people that come into the ER so I'm, I'm just not going to tell anybody and if nobody knows then it will be okay oh. and so it, it, but it wasn't okay. I thought I could slowly set boundaries with him to the point where there wasn't a relationship left. But that all would have worked had he respected boundaries to begin with, which he didn't. And that's, you know, one of the things that's inherent in abuse is it's, it's disrespect of a person's boundaries. So um, even after I tried to end the relationship, I can remember one time coming home and feeding my kids dinner and putting them to bed and then walking into my own room and he was in my bed. He had mm. been in my house the entire time and I had no idea. Ooh, what a creepy feeling. It's a very creepy feeling. He was in my car one night when I left for work, but I was terrified and I was in the situation where no one had known that I was still seeing him. So mm. who could I tell? Right, 
Right. And at that point, you would feel shameful to even tell someone that. Right. Right. Because what I would have to have said is, oh, I've been lying all this time. Mm. And nobody wants to do that. Well, and in the story you describe of him being in your bed, and there are two sleeping children. Right. So it wasn't like you could just run. No, I wasn't going to run. And I wasn't, I, I made the decision that for my safety and for my kids' safety in that situation, I had to play, I had to play nice. Right. Because I was terrified. Yes. You know, you said you had asked him to leave. Um, he actually did move out. It sounds like he obviously intruded back. But how did that go with him leaving? Did it went okay. Um, it it happened after a big, big, big fight where he had beaten me up very badly, had mm. um, strangled me until I was unconscious. Oh, and um, and I said, I'm not doing this anymore. You have to leave. And I called his parents. And they, mm. came, they came and got him. And I went to my parents' house mm-hmm. for some time um, and then ended up going back to the house yeah. where I lived. And that's when... So it really became life-threatening. Very, very much so. Mm -hmm. Did Mm -hmm. he make threats to kill you? All the time. Mm. All the time. And did that escalate as you were making signs of leaving him, or did that precede that? Uh, It it preceded it. Actually, as I was making uh, attempts to leave him, he was doing more scary things like intruding in my home, breaking in, being in my vehicle, but he wasn't being physically violent to me. Mm. at that point. Um, but he didn't need to be anymore. I was scared to death of him. Mm-hmm. That brings up a point that you had mentioned before, and I think this might be a, a moment to say it, that you gave me a definition of domestic violence, and I'd like, I'd like to ask you to, to say that now about the difference between physical violence and control. Yeah. Um, thanks for bringing that up, because I think one of the things that most people think about when we think about domestic violence, I mean, that's the term that's commonly used now. Um, when we think about domestic violence, we think of people being violent in a relationship. And although that sometimes happens, and physical violence is one tactic that abusers use, they use so many others that are just as effective at controlling victims. Um, My abuser would um, tell me that I was a horrible mother, that I was insane, that I couldn't make it without him. He told me that I was ugly, that nobody would want to ever be with me, that I was lucky to have him. Mm. Any time I had money, he would ask me for it and say that he was going to get groceries and then he would come back without groceries and no money. Um, So he rendered you both terrified of him but also very dependent on him, concretely. Yeah. And feeling like you couldn't make it in the world without him. That's that's what he wanted me to believe. Yeah. That's really what he wanted me to believe. And as as he isolated me from my family, because this is a hard topic for families to deal with, they knew what was going on and they were at their wits end. Mm-hmm. Um, as I had less people to talk to about what was going on, I got less messages from supporters about what a good and capable person I was. So his voice was huge and I really mm-hmm. believed him. Right. So he really was able to undermine your confidence. Yes. Yes. I can understand that. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. The show is Safe Space. And my guest today is Sherry Edwards. We're talking about domestic violence. So um, what I'm hearing is that you and you had this gradual distancing where he kept intruding in. And then what? Was, how did it finally come to an end? 
It finally came to an end when I got a protection order against him. Um, and I wasn't aware of protection orders and how they worked. In the in the town where I came from, I had heard people talk about something called a peace bond. I still, you know, I've done this work for 15 years. I still really don't know what a peace bond is. Mm. Um, but I knew that there was a piece of paper you could get, but I didn't understand how to do it. And I found out about how to get a protection order and did that. And I think the message to him was, Now she's serious. I had tried not answering the phone. I had unplugged my phone. He called my work. I I tried to let him know that I didn't want to have anything to do with him, but the message was it wasn't sticking. And Mm -hmm. I I got a protection order, and he never violated that protection order directly. And this is a man who said, I'll hunt you down. He said to me, I'll, you might think that you're safe, but someday I'm going to find you. Mm. So that leads me to the next question, which is how, so then he never violated it directly, you said. Mm -hmm. How was it for you to live in fear afterwards? I was very frightened, Mm. very frightened. And he continued to do things. We came from, we lived in Hancock County. It's a small area. People know each other. And he did things like, at that point, I was working part-time for an ambulance. And one of the drivers came in and said, your, I was on a run today, and your ex-boyfriend drove his truck at the ambulance. Mm. And this so that's was, what you meant by not directly. Not directly, mm-hmm. but he probably believed that I was driving. Mm-hmm. So, so he wanted to give you a message. Mm-hmm. And, and after I was done with the relationship, I didn't know what the police could do, but I was afraid of him. So I went to the sheriff's department and explained the whole story to them, what what had happened. And there really wasn't a whole lot they could do um, because the physical violence, the piece of it that's illegal, had happened a long time before that. And even the breaking into my house had happened months before that. They needed something current. And once I started engaging authorities and getting protection order and things like that, he stopped doing things. Mm. So there was really nothing that they ever could do. And it's interesting because he left the area where we lived and I didn't hear about him, didn't see him, had nothing to do with him, which was wonderful. And a couple of years ago, um, I picked up a newspaper, the Bangor Daily News, and there was a story in it that he had attacked and kidnapped a woman. And um, And I had known from the level of violence I experienced that I was sure he was somewhere perpetrating this on other people because mm-hmm. I was I knew it wasn't about me. Um, but what it said at the end of that article was that he, that, um, he had no violent criminal history. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. So that said to you that they didn't have a record of the protection order against him or... And I know I wasn't the first woman to get a protection order against him, so I found that out later. Um, so what does that say? They didn't so do their homework or I the think system doesn't keep a track very well? Well, protection orders are civil, so it's separated from the criminal justice system. He was oh. never convicted. What they were saying is he was never convicted of a violent crime. Huh. So even if he'd been charged with a violent crime and not convicted, he'd still have no criminal history. So did that make you wish that somehow you had prosecuted him? Yes. It made me wish that there had been some way for that to happen. And I remember thinking, I want to call the DA's office up there and explain to them that he does have a a violent history because he's a dangerous man. Yes. Um, But they can only use against someone what's documented. 
Right, right. Uh, so I want to shift gears now and sure. talk about, so he left the area. You weren't having a lot of contact with him. Um, but as you said, he had clearly kind of left you in this very undermined state in terms of not believing in yourself, having been cut off from the people who did believe in you. So tell us a little bit about your your process of healing and recovery from what had happened to you. How? Well, I think one of the things that I credit a great deal was the is the fact that I have a very strong family who was very supportive of me and um, always were giving me positive messages. Even during the relationship, when I would see them, they would they would do this, but I didn't believe them at that mm. point. So that was a big big help to me having the support of my family. But I also needed to learn for myself how to trust my gut again and and. Mm. Um, I went through a period where I felt sort of empowered by the situation because I thought, okay, if I lived through that, there are other things that I could do. And it helped me to um, really take joy in simple things in life. I started Mm -hmm. paying attention to leaves on trees and watching birds and spending time in the woods. And those are things that I did as a child that I really took back. I feel like nature helped me heal Mm. a great a great deal, mm-hmm. a great deal. And so after I had spent some time doing that, I decided that I, you know, I, I wanted to be able to give back something. And there was a domestic violence project that was actually starting up in the county where I lived. Um, and they had a volunteer training. I took the volunteer training and started out as a volunteer and uh, eventually began working there. And um, I've worked at this, where I work now at Caring Unlimited, um, this is the third domestic violence project in the state that I've worked at. Mm. And it's interesting to me because I have my own story about domestic violence, and I've heard thousands and thousands and thousands of women's stories over 15 years. And and they're all unique, but it's all the same in some ways, too. The tactics that are used are often so similar, and the effects that the, those tactics have on people can be strikingly similar well, as and well. Are there any that we haven't named so far, those effects? Um, I'm, I don't think so. Just that loss of the feeling, of, loss of sense of yourself, mm. and having to figure out how to get that back and having to figure out how to feel safe again yeah in the world yeah so tell me more about that i mean you talked about being in nature did that help you feel safe again or what it helped me feel like there was something bigger going on than just me and my problems <sighs> and um paying attention to nature and wildlife and the way that they react you know it, I watch birds. So birds react on instinct. They don't mm. plot. They don't scheme. They don't strategize. Analyze. They don't lie. They don't. Mm. They don't do things like this, you know. And and it's okay to accept things as they appear. Mm. So when you said earlier about trusting your gut, how did you feel afraid to be in a relationship again and to? to know that you would have the judgment to like how you would know who would be safe. Yeah. I think I actually went through a period where, um, I didn't think probably anybody was safe. And I can remember, um, several years ago, I was, I was in a situation where I thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to start dating. And 
my friends would joke with me because after like date two, I would find a reason why no one was acceptable to me and why this person probably would turn out to be bad. Mm-hmm. Right. So your sensitivity indicator was tuned up very high, which makes a great deal of sense. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, we, we talked about that, that self-blame, the kind of blame the victim culture that you were part of. And one of the things I wanted to ask you was about prevention and sort of wondering, um, was there anything that you feared made you vulnerable to getting into this kind of relationship? Anything that somehow you thought, if I could have healed that first, maybe this wouldn't have happened to me? Um, no, not really. I don't think so. I, I went into this, when I got into this relationship, I was astounded that this was happening to me because it's something that I had always thought happened to other people. Hmm. Not me, which made it a little bit difficult for me to identify early on that that was the pattern that I was seeing because my father didn't treat my mother this way. I didn't know people that this happened to. Hmm. So I don't, I don't really think I could have prevented it from happening. Mm-hmm. So you had this thought, as I think many people do, that's something that happens to other people. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and that makes it more comfortable for us. But I... I do believe that it can and does happen to anybody. Mm-hmm. It, it really can. And it's such an insidious process. No abuser walks up to somebody and invites them on a date and then hits them at the same time. You know, there's a long process and a whole bunch of layers and nuance that happen um, that really lay that the foundation for how that relationship is going to play out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, And it's those layers of nuance that are the coercive control that I was that I was talking about. Yeah. This is Dr. Ann on WMPG at Safe Space. My guest today is Sherry Edwards. We're talking about domestic violence. I'd like to ask you now about how you felt about the impact of this on your children and how that shaped your your decision about the relationship and your fears about it now. Yeah, I was I was always concerned about the impact that it was going to have on my kids. And what I believed at the time, my kids were very little when I got into this relationship, one and a half and three. And I thought, they're young. They'll be able to g- get over this. Um, and that's what I really had hoped. But it still looms large in both of their lives. And, and I wish, like, more than anything I in the world, I wish that I could change that for them. Mm. Um, but it, it does have a, a huge amount of impact. Mm-hmm. And when you say loom large, do you mean that they, too, struggle with fear? They struggle with fear and um, some post-traumatic stuff mm-hmm. um, and each have their their own issues that I think can be directly linked back to the things that they witnessed so they when witnessed they, were, they witnessed you being hurt. They mm-hmm. did. And even if they didn't witness it, a beating is loud. It's not yeah. a quiet thing. And so even if they weren't in the room, I would have liked to have believed that they didn't hear anything that happened, but I know that they did. Mm-hmm. I want to shift now to um, asking you a little bit about what are the factors that make it, I want to come back to where we started because I want to make sure we make this really clear about the factors that make it hard for women to leave. You know, you talked about how the staff at the emergency room were talking about these women. And um, it feels really important. We often hear that. Why doesn't she just leave? And I wondered if you could say more about 
give us a list of the re the factors that make that hard because I think we often don't appreciate those. There are so many things that make it difficult for people to get out of situations like that. And when when any of us as a well-meaning individual says, why doesn't she just leave? Um, we say that because we're worried about people and we're worried about the risk that they're at, um, them and their kids, when they're in a violent relationship. But if we list out what those risks are, such as being killed, being injured, um, having your sense of self wrecked, um, you know, being living in poverty, um, you know, we could make a long list of the risks. When we think about how those play themselves out if the victim leaves, most of those risks aren't ameliorated simply by leaving. For instance, you're at a greater risk of being killed after you leave or when you're in the process of leaving an abusive relationship. Most assaults that get reported to police happen after a couple has separated. Mm. And so careful um, planning, safety planning, I think is crucial when, when trying to get out of a relationship like this. And I think it's something that um, victims of domestic violence are doing all the time, trying to figure out how to lessen the abuser's impact on them and their kids. And sometimes how to lessen that impact is play nice or is don't make a big deal out of everything. Um, especially temporarily. temporarily, especially yeah. if they're in a situation where they're not able to leave that relationship at that point. And then again, in order to leave something, you have to have some place to go, don't you? You can't leave and go nowhere. Um, and that's why domestic violence projects are, are so important in the whole scheme of things. I was lucky I never had to go to a shelter. I did contact a domestic violence project. I did go to a support group that was very helpful. I read lots of books, but I didn't have to go to a shelter because my family helped me. Mm. Um, you know, in our my last questions, we're, we're going to have to stop mm -hmm. in a minute. You mentioned before we started that the numbers in terms of domestic violence are going up in the state and that the rate of murder is going up. Yeah. And, and I'd like to ask you what you think as a society are some of the things we need to do to really address this. I think we need to change our attitude about domestic violence. If what I heard when I was experiencing domestic violence was, in the, when I was listening to my coworkers in the ER talk, if I heard them say things like, I'm so sorry that this is happening to this woman. I wish that there was a way that I could help her, um, rather than blaming her. Mm -hmm. um, so if we stop blaming victims for things that are happening to them and put the onus back on the perpetrator and figure out a way to hold perpetrators accountable um, in, a, in a way that works. Um, I think that that will make a big difference. And I think one of the places that I'm at with the whole thing after paying attention now for a long time is that men need to be holding other men accountable and talking to other men about this issue. And it's hard to get men to sit down at the table and talk about this. And there, I know that there are some groups around the state who are starting those conversations. I know that Attorney General Steve Rowe is really behind um, this type of initiative. And, and I encourage that to continue. Um, men need to be talking to other men about it because primarily when you talk about coercive control, most of the time it's men perpetrating it against women if it's in a heterosexual relationship. Mm -hmm. So I am hearing two, three main things. The first was to change our attitudes away from blaming the victim. The second is to have a more powerful way of enforcing kind of criminally. I mean, I think your mm -hmm. example of the fact that these civil protection orders didn't show up on a criminal record is a very concrete structural problem. Mm -hmm. 
And then thirdly, trying to find ways that men could even begin this discussion. Yeah. Yeah. So in closing, I'd like to ask you if you could give us the hotline number for Caring Unlimited, where you work, so that if there's anybody who's listening who would like to reach out, that they can do so. Um, Certainly. Uh, The hotline number is 1-800-239-7298, and that's for York County's Domestic Violence Project. Um, If you're not in York County, if you look in the front page of your phone book, on the front page of your phone book lists the domestic violence project that's in your area. Um, but that's the number for Caring Unlimited. Sherry, thank you so much. It's been really um, moving and inspiring to talk to you today. I appreciate thank you. It. Thanks for having me. So this is Dr. Ann and WMPG concluding this week's show of Safe Space. My thanks to Jen Hodston for mixing the sound and to Hanukkah Castle for the music. Um, Next week's show will be uh, featuring Katie Murray talking about losing a child. If you have a request for a further topic, please feel free to email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com. Coming up next is Caribbean Flavor with Danny.